Amen. Well, what a worthy, awesome God that we serve. Amen. Uh, our worship is uh, intended to remind us, um, and, and not just remind us, but bring us into the presence of God and to keep our focus on Him. And so as we you know, dive into God's Word, um, the point is to not lose that focus, but to continue <laughs> to make sure that, that He is the one that we're uh, worshiping, that we're following. And, and this whole question of what is discipleship, it uh, asks us to really understand what it means that we have a God that is worthy of our allegiance. We have a God who is worthy of uh, our love. We have a God that is worthy of, of our relationship, of, of our adoration, of our praise, of our prayers, that uh, we're coming into the presence of God uh, as we worship, but also in every aspect of what the church is, um, discipleship is the heart of it. It's the, the nature of it. It's what we do. It's, it's really who we are and what we're trying to produce, not only in ourselves, but in other people. Um, and so we're, we're gathering, you know, a, a group of people. You look around, I'm, I'm always amazed every week that we have a full church of people that want to know what God's Word says so that we can follow Him more closely. Isn't that why we're here? And so the, the issue, like what is discipleship? The tendency is from, I don't know, leaders, whatever you want to call the church staff and those that are kind of trying to figure out, you know, how to help people to the tendency is to create programs and to create curriculums and to create processes and systems that'll, you know, make disciples. And uh, we have all these different things that we do. And so in our minds, we say discipleship and autom automatically a lot of people have this, this uh, go-to thing that they think that discipleship is. It's this, this uh, tendency uh, that we have to uh, make it a seasonal thing that we're going to emphasize discipleship and we're going to take people through a curriculum, right? Have you ever been taken through a, a workbook? And you raise your hand if you've gone through a workbook that is supposed to have been a... Well, that's a lot of people. I don't, we don't need to talk about discipleship. You're already there, right? You're... You're graduated. You went through the workbook. You did the curriculum. You learned the process and all the right teachings that are supposed to bring you to the point where after you finish, I've been discipled, right? Isn't that what we say? I've, been I've gone through the Rose Guide of Discipleship. I've been discipled. And what we know is that that is not the case. It's a part of the process. It's good. It's okay. It's don't you know? Throw out the workbooks. They're they're good. They they're necessary, um, but that's not what discipleship is. You can't finish with discipleship by finishing a book. You know, my tendency, and and I'll just admit this. This is like AA for pastors. Every time I preach, I feel like I'm just like, you know, here I got a, something to confess. My tendency is to emphasize spiritual uh, formation. That, that's what I tend to want to do. I want to I get you into the Bible. I want you to get you into prayer time. I want to make sure that, that you are developing a personal relationship with Jesus. That's, that's what I believe is the essence of discipleship. But that can be a problem if we, we think that, um, that that is all that it is, that Christianity, that your 
development and growth in faith is going to start and stop and really be uh, almost encapsulated in the fact that you have a private prayer time and a Bible reading time. That's not discipleship either, not completely, but it's part of a relationship. And so we say that's, that's really important, but you can also be very isolated in that. And you can become very prideful in my personal relationship. And here's what the Lord's saying to me. And here's what I'm learning. And then not have it filtered through a community of people that are also struggling and working and figuring out and developing and growing together, right? And then there's this other thing that we tend to want to do is um, to put people into accountability relationships. Anybody have an accountability partner? Nobody does. Okay, so maybe we need to start some of this. But here's the thing is that sometimes people think discipleship is if I just get one person or two that will just keep me accountable, then they will help me grow spiritually. They will tell me where I'm sinning. They will tell me where I'm lacking. They'll tell me where I'm weak or where I'm strong. They'll encourage me. They'll pray for me. They'll help me. They'll teach me. They'll do all these things. And when we kind of think sometimes that that is discipleship. And if I'm not doing that for somebody, then I'm not discipling anyone. And if nobody's doing that for me, then I'm not being discipled. And, and I don't know, do, you, do you, we have all these things that we're bringing into this topic, but here's what we're going to learn, I think and I hope, over the course of this next several months, is that all these things have something to do with discipleship, but none of these things are discipleship alone, Okay. The discipleship is two things, generally. Learning what Jesus taught and imitating Jesus' life. Will you ever graduate from that process? We cannot possibly cover everything that is included in that in any series. I can preach on this until I die. Okay, and we will not get to the end of it. Um, so this is what we're doing. We're we're diving into these topics and trying to really understand what it means to live the Christian life, and then, and this is the other part that we miss a lot, how to help other people to live the Christian life as well. It's it's both for me and it's for others. So let's start uh, where I think we really need to start with the with the Great Commission. Okay, and you've heard this, you've read this, you've heard it preached on. I, I think I preached on it like this year even, <laughs> um, but we're going to read it again, hopefully with new eyes, and come uh, back to really what he's trying to teach us in this process of discipleship. Let's stand and read God's word together. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. This is the the ESV. It says now. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, it's really all about you. It's about knowing you, honoring you, um, reflecting you, following you, thanking you for being with us, uh, holding on to your promises, Lord, believing in 
uh, your life, death, and resurrection, um, claiming those things for our very own, um, seeing those things do a, a wonderful spiritual work in us of redemption, uh, sanctification, growing closer to you, uh, and then failing and, and being forgiven and continuing to, to struggle and continuing to reach out for you and knowing that you never give up on us. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can uh, continue in this process until the day we die. We'll, we'll never come to the end of it, but we'll uh, find a great joy <laughs> in, in that process. Growing deeper in love with you, uh, growing more excited about seeing other people know you. And when we see that happen, uh, what a miracle that is. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you give us this as a commission. You, you tell us that we're partners with you in your mission to help other people to know you. And so help us to know you as we follow and honor and glorify you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to just tell you a couple things that are background, okay? As we come to the Great Commission, uh, we got to understand just a couple things. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Um, and then we hear Jesus give them the Great Commission. Now, um, the thing that you have to remember is that they're in Galilee, okay? Now, when Jesus rose from the dead... He appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended. Where did he ascend from? Anybody? Mount of Olives. Where's Mount of Olives? Jerusalem. That's not in Galilee, right? So when, when sometimes people, they, I don't think they mean to say this, but they, sometimes they say these are the last words of Jesus. These are not the last words of Jesus because Jesus went up to Galilee. He had some uh, events, some, some appearances to his disciples. You can read that in John uh, where they're fishing and they catch the miraculous 153 fish. And Jesus is on the shore and he's cooking some fish over some coals. And then Peter says, oh, it's the Lord, right? Or John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in and they go back. And now Jesus recommissions uh, or reestablishes Peter's ministry, right? All that happens in John. This also happens um, in that time, but Jesus is going to go back down to Jerusalem, and he's going to ascend from uh, the Mount of Olives to heaven from there. So this is just part of the story of what's going on. Matthew puts it into uh, the, the last words, not because these are the last words of Jesus. Not, he's not even saying these are the last words of Jesus. He's just putting as the last thing in his gospel because he wants us to remember that we are commissioned to make disciples, okay? So that's the, the whole point there. The last words of Jesus you see in Acts chapter 1 where he says, you will receive power. We're going to have to get to that maybe next week where we talk about the, the issue of receiving the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is really going to be the power to developing and growing in your discipleship. But he says, you'll receive power, and then you will be my witnesses. So those two things are going to be working together, where the Holy Spirit empowers you, not only in your relationship with God, but also in your relationship with others in order to help them to know God, right? But here, we have a commission. So he's in Galilee. This is not his last words, um, but something interesting happens in verse, 11, or verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. 
Okay, now we all say amen to that, right? We're here to worship Jesus. This is what the whole point of the church is, to worship him, to glorify him, to honor him, to lift up his name. But then it says, but some doubted. Do you find that strange? No, you don't find that strange. You do find that strange. Okay, so here's the deal. I find that strange um, in, in a sense because you understand that the gospel of Matthew, the whole point of him writing the gospel is to convince people, to prove to people that he is the Messiah, that that's the whole idea, right? That he's writing down everything Jesus said, everything that he did, uh, the miracles that he performed, and his death, burial, resurrection, all this stuff, basically just to convince, at this point, Jewish people to, that Jesus fulfills everything of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that validates that he really is God. That's his point. And it's interesting that Matthew, the early church fathers, said we don't have any uh, transcripts of, of the first you know, gospel writings. I mean, we have lots and lots of transcripts that are very, very early. But the, that Matthew was written in Hebrew. So how many of you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek? You all know that? Okay, if you didn't know that, now you know that. Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew because he was intending for the Jewish people to learn and know and understand and come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And then it got translated into Greek right away, and then our, all the uh, transcripts that we have, all the manuscripts that we have, uh, are Greek manuscripts. He's trying to prove that. And then he says, but some doubt it. Now, here's what Scripture does that we don't always do. Scripture is very honest. <laughs> Somebody laughed. Because <laughs> we're not always as honest with ourselves as Scripture is with us. Some doubt it. Why do some doubt? I I'm going to give you a, th a theory, and I think I told you this before, but just bear with me. Okay, so... The 11 go to the mountain. We don't know what mountain. Maybe it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it's the Mount of Beatitudes. We don't know exactly which mountain. They go to this mountain. Are there other people that go with the 11, or is it just the 11? Anybody know? You don't know. How, how could you know? It doesn't say. So it says the 11. We'll assume the 11. Let's just assume it's just the 11. Judas is dead. He's gone. And it's Jesus and his 11 disciples that are left and they worship him. Matthew is recounting that they've been with him. They've seen the miracles. They've, seen the, they've heard the, the, the teachings, the prophecies. They've seen all these things fulfilled. They worship him, but some doubt it. They, it doesn't say some worshiped. It says they, they worship. They all worship, but some doubt it. And here's what I think is happening. is that they, it, this, Paul says it this way. He says, if you, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Right? And then, you know, the second part of that is, and also what? Confess or believe in your heart <laughs> that Jesus is raised from the dead. Then you will be saved. He puts those two things together. Believe that he's Lord, but also that believe that he's been raised from the dead. Here's what I think possibly is happening, is that the disciples, when Jesus was arrested, um, remember what happened? Judas kisses Jesus, and the soldiers are there, and Jesus says, who do you want? And he says, uh, Jesus, and he says, I am he, and they fall to the ground. And then 
You know, he says, well, if you're here for me, then just leave these alone. Take me. Well, what happens, though, is that all the disciples flee for their lives because they think that they're next, that they're going to grab Jesus, and then they're going to grab them and kill them. Now, they don't necessarily know that God in his power and Jesus in his power, he, Jesus asked for the disciples' lives that they were spiritually, supernaturally spared. They, they weren't going to be attacked or killed. They didn't know that, though. So they're fleeing for their lives. Only John and Peter go to the, uh, the, 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 the trial of Jesus in Ananias' courtyard, right? They're there. They see this. Jesus turns and sees Peter after Peter denies Jesus three times, and Peter is broken and weeping because he just denied his Lord. And then he runs off to who knows where. John kind of trails along. John is the only disciple that we know of that was at the crucifixion. Some women were there. Jesus' mother Mary was there. But the only apostle, the only disciple that was at the crucifixion saw Jesus die was John. Who buried Jesus? Pop quiz, who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, okay? Why? Why didn't his disciples do it? Because they weren't there. They were hiding. They, were, they didn't see the crucifixion. They didn't see Jesus died. And then some of the women saw where they placed Jesus' body, but that was done very quickly, thrown in the tomb, rolled the stone over, and then, okay, leave it. And they're going to come back three days later. They're going to prepare the body, but then he's not there. And here's what I think that the disciples, the 11, when they see Jesus, it's not that they don't believe that he's Lord. It's that they maybe doubt or don't know or don't understand or haven't come to the conclusion that he really has been raised from the dead because they didn't really see him die. They come to understand and believe that, um, but there's this thing happening where Scripture is pretty honest where we're not always as honest. They, they come to this understanding, and, they, they, and here's what I'm believing is important for us to see in the Scripture, is that there is a point where in order to be a disciple, you have to make a decision in your faith. Okay? And a lot of the time... The issue is not whether or not we doubt God. When I think about this, I, I, and I know that there are lots of people in the world that doubt God's, you know, whether he exists or whether he's good or whether Jesus is the son of God or did he die or did he rise or and all these things. I know people doubt that, but generally speaking, most of the people I talk to, that's not really their doubt. And, and most of the people in, in, that I'm talking to right now, it, you're not really doubting the nature of God. Is God almighty? Is he good? Is he all present? Is he powerful? Like you don't really, you're not really struggling with that as much as you're struggling probably with the evidence that you fail to see in the lives of the people who claim to be believers. If God is who he says he is and he's able to do what we believe he's able to do, what his word says and what we profess as Christians then how come I don't see more evidence in the Christian people I know? How come they're still so angry? Why are they still sinning the way that many Christians do? Why are they still acting that way? Why are they so divided? Why are they so toxic in our workplace? 
How come they're not better witnesses in these different venues that Christians, you know, and they look at Christians and they say, I don't know if you're showing me the reality of what you say you believe. Does that hurt anybody's heart? Um, <laughs> who am I talking to right now? You ever heard the, the term, you're preaching to the choir? And I'm talking about myself, because I know that I don't always perfectly or even very well reflect the very things that I preach or say I believe. Isn't that a strange thing? And here's what I want to make sure that we understand, is that when you decide to put your life into God's hands, when you decide to claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to tell you a secret. Um, your life is still going to be messed up. And you're still going to fail, and you're still going to do wrong things, and you're still going to desire wrong things, and you're still going to, you're still going to ignore God and His leading. You're still going to misunderstand God's word. You're still going to have problems with people. You're still going to have relationships that are broken. You're still going to do things that you wish you hadn't, didn't want to do, that they're still going to want to do them. And uh, you're going to struggle through these things. And sometimes you're going to grow and sometimes you're going to revert. Sometimes you're going to do really well for a season. And sometimes you're going to, you're just going to get fed up and you're going to kind of do your own thing for a while. Anybody have that testimony? And we're constantly a work in progress, okay? And the world is unfair. That's a blanket statement. Now, but the world is also very unfair towards Christians because they, they probably have the same misconception that many of us have, which is that it's really about Christians instead of what it really is about, which is Jesus. They're looking at Christians more closely than they're looking at Jesus, which is what we often do ourselves. Here's what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where's our focus? It's on him. He's the one that we're following we're disciples of Jesus. We're not disciples of each other. He's the one that we glorify. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that did paid the price. He's the one that rose from the dead. He did all the things that we couldn't do. He is the object of all of our attention, should be. He's the one that we're driving our hearts toward. He's the one that we're trying to, to imitate poorly. We're trying. He's the one we're learning from. He's the one that gets all the glory. And our problem, which the world has the same problem, is that we tend to dwell more on each other than we do on him or ourselves and feel bad about ourselves because I'm not doing it as well as I should. And we beat ourselves up or we try to magnify ourselves. Oh, look how great I'm doing and, and false pride and all those different things are always playing into this whole thing of discipleship. But he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So this is the basis of discipleship. It's about Jesus. He was gathering followers to follow him, to learn his teachings, and to imitate his life. 
Okay? That's what he was doing in his life, in his ministry, and what he continues to do now. Followers, disciples, that's what that means. Disciple is basically a follower who learns his teachings and his way, his way of life. And as we do that, something begins to kind of alter and shift and change in our perspective because we can get our eyes off of the horizontal and onto the vertical. And here's what he says. And this is a tragedy. I, I think this is a tragedy in the church, okay? Worldwide, for all of history, he says, do not call anyone Clear teaching of, of Jesus in Scripture that he says. Why? Because he's the teacher. You have one Father, and you have one guide, the Holy Spirit. He, he wants to bring us into that relationship where we're disciples of Jesus. And what has the church done for 2,000 years? Almost from day one. Half of the church, half of Christendom right now, follows Leaders who call themselves Father. Right? That's half the church says Father. And Jesus says, you have one Father. Why would we do that? It doesn't make sense. And then you think, well, we're Baptists, so we're, we're safe. We got this problem, guys, ourselves. I went to school um, to get a master's degree. Many people have master's degrees. I, I am a master of divinity. Call me master. <laughs> Somebody's choking. <laughs> it's so mind-numbingly stupid, the things that we do, that we want to exalt ourselves to something like we think that that's going to earn some kind of credit with people or I don't even know what that is. It's bizarre. But then, okay, so, okay, that's the first time you've ever heard me say, call me master, and you'll never hear me say that again. <laughs> but the, the reality, though, is that the, there's this underlying thing in most churches, okay, and I'm saying most, where we pay the pastor to be our representative and to teach us and to lead us and to go do, you know, these emergency calls and, and to counsel people and have all the answers and do the funerals and perform the weddings and to do the baptisms. And, and we've got to make sure that somebody who's ordained is doing these things because they're the ones who are qualified, right? And you're like, do you want to get fired? Is that what you're trying to do? But the, the thing is that we, we, are, we are stuck in this cycle of exalting the wrong people and things. We have to exalt Christ, and we have to make sure that, that this relationship that we have in the church is we're all in this together. And we're all ministers. It says that we have the priesthood of all believers and that there are different 
levels of maturity, and there's different levels of knowledge, and there's different levels of leadership, and we all understand that. We're not, you know, mad about that. We're, we're okay with that stuff. That stuff happens, but the reality is that if I transfer the responsibility of discipling to a leader, then I don't have to. And if I say it's not really important for me to be mature or me to be really, you know, have all these things together because somebody else is going to do that for us, then what happens to the church in general is that we downgrade the ministry of the body to a point where we're just soaking up from something what we think that we need for ourselves, and we're not doing it. Praise the Lord for this. Our church, by the grace of God, is full of people that are ministering to each other and are fantastic witnesses in their workplaces, in their schools, in their homes, and authentically doing that. I praise God for that because that is the health and the strength of this church or any church is that we have people that believe and practice the priesthood of all believers. Amen. But he says, we're disciples of one, Jesus. That's it. Even Paul, he says, yeah, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but he's not saying be my disciple. Remember what he said? Some people say, I follow Paul. Some people say, I follow Apollos. Some people say, I follow Peter. And others are saying, I follow Christ. And he's like, shouldn't we all be following Christ? Paul didn't exalt himself like, hey, be my disciple. He's just, he's one of many that are pointing to Jesus. All authority, this is the basis. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the scope baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. But all nations, what does that, what does that mean? And I want to make this um, pretty clear, but Christianity from the very beginning and always Jesus' intention was, it was absolutely inclusive. Everyone. doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your culture, your gender, your sin background. Remember Paul talked about this too? He says um, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says this whole list of just vulgar, horrible sin that was going on in the culture. And then he says, such were some of you, right? Because the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ is one Savior, one Lord, one name under heaven by which everyone has been given, by which we must be saved. There's no other, no other religion is going to get you there, okay? It's one Savior for all. So it includes all. The, the church has been misrepresented in the world, I think, that we're exclusive, that it's only for people that look like us or, or think the way that we think or whatever, talk like us. And uh, what we know from very early on is that the church and the gospel was always intended and always has been extended by invitation to anyone and everyone, okay? That includes every sin, every gender identity issue that you have, every tendency that you have, every lifestyle that you've ever lived or that has ever been lived, everything, every person in the world is included in that invitation. 
Okay, it's, it's absolutely, and I mean absolutely in a very literal sense, inclusive. Everybody's invited. And then what happens? It becomes very exclusive. The invitation of the gospel is anyone can be saved, and everybody's invited to be saved, but we can only be saved through one Savior, one name, and then he calls us into a life that he's going to be Lord of. So I got to put my desires, my tendencies, my temptations, my past, whatever I have had in, in, in my background, I got to put it all aside. And then I say, Jesus, what do you want from my life? The, the danger, or the, the struggle, or the, the difficulty in the church tends to be that we want to have, and <laughs> we have it the wrong way both, both ways. We're either too exclusive in the invitation, or we're too um, inclusive in this, the lifestyle that we're, we're going to permit afterwards. It, both of those are a big problem, would you agree? So we come down to, if Jesus is Lord, how does he want me to live? What does he say about the past and sin and my life and all those things, and how do I get those right with the Lord? We all come to him with our baggage and our ten tendencies and our temptations. Everybody's got them. And then we come to him and he brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life in Christ. And we're all doing this together, figuring it out. We're not perfect. We're still working on it, but we're getting closer to that relationship and to the resemblance of Jesus, we hope. So it's the scope is everyone, and then the process, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay, first of all is the baptism. I'm going to be very Baptist right now, okay? Um, this means, I believe, in all Scripture testifies to this, so... Um, not talking out of school, is not taking this little passage alone. A believer, a, a person who is old enough to understand faith in Christ for myself, I need Jesus, I have sinned, He's the Savior, I'm going to put my faith in Him. Okay? I'm saved by grace through faith. And then the initiation into that life, it's not the graduation. Okay, it's the initiation. It's the public proclamation that I have decided to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm baptized. It means, in Greek, immersion. We, what we did was we took the word baptizo in Greek. We just moved it over into English. It's called transliteration, and we call it baptize, and people because we had so many different traditions doing so many different things, we're like, oh, we'll just make it smooth and easy for everybody. So you can interpret that word to mean whatever you want. But the word, if you translate it, means to immerse. You go to Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us a very clear example. He's talking about baptism. He says, we're buried with Christ. That's why what we say when we baptize somebody, you're buried with Christ, raised to walk to the, in the newness of life. Because you're, you're literally 
picturing a person bodily, completely immersed in the ground or underwater and then rising again from that water. So it's this step of obedience. It doesn't save you, okay? It it doesn't have that power because only God in His grace through the name of Jesus can save you. But it's the initiation into that life that says, I am initiated into who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, let's take it figuratively for just a moment. What that means is that you cannot, and we are experts at this, and it's an absolute false way to be a Christian. You cannot compartmentalize different segments of your life and keep them away from God. Okay? Well, I'm a good Christian when I'm in church. How many are good Christians in church? I don't see a ton of sin going on in church, do you? Not some, <laughs> not much. Because we're pretty good. Like even people that struggle with their language. I don't hear too many <laughs> once in a while, but not too many bad words in church. How is that possible? Because you say you can't control your mouth, but you seem to control it when you're here. Here's what we do. I got this part of my life over here that I think I'm okay with being sinful. And maybe it's your thought life, and maybe it's your this simple relationship you got. Maybe it's this alcohol that you still are... Whatever it is, okay? You got these things. And here's what I'm going to tell you. And I know I am almost completely alone in this. Alito has a problem with alcohol. As a community culture. And a lot of people as Christians are like, eh, it's okay. How much you personally are willing to compromise in that area is up to you and the Lord. But I'm telling you, drunkenness is absolutely sinful. And that's it. Okay. (laughs) I can go on. Um, Here's the thing. What I am learning is that I I am almost completely alone in this. Even pastors are are living a secret double life. And I'm not going to buy alcohol in Lido because I don't have anybody to see, but I'm going to go somewhere where people don't know me. I'm going to buy my, my beer there, and I'm going to hide it somewhere where nobody's going to watch me drink it. And th- This kind of stuff was going on when I was in college with people that had signed a covenant with their church as youth pastors that they would not drink, and then they would go and have poker parties and drink and like, well, as long as my senior pastor doesn't find out, it's okay. Compartmentalizing. Just, I'm going to take this part of my life and I'm going to say, eh, God doesn't really care about that. And listen, all I'm saying is that to be a Christian means that your whole life is on display before the Lord and He wants your whole life. And I'm not saying that that means you try to pretend to be perfect. I'm saying, let's make sure that we're bringing everything into the full counsel of of Scripture and God's Holy Spirit and let Him deal with it. 
And if it's wrong, let him say that it's wrong, and I'm not going to justify it. Right? Some of you are like, amen, keep preaching. Some of you are like, can you please move on? All right. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to ESV, bad job, obey. Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So what this is, is we get spiritual knowledge, we learn scripture, we study, and then at some point we obey. Has that ever happened to you? Now here's where your discipleship comes in. Discipleship means closing the gap between what you know and what you do. He doesn't say, teach them everything I, com- I commanded you, or teach them all that I taught you, or just get a workbook out and make sure they know all the, the right doctrines. He says, teach them to what? Obey everything that I commanded you. That's a huge difference. So he's trying to bring us into... Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, because you can't really obey things that you don't understand. There will always be a little bit of a gap between what you know and what you're doing, I think. Right? Because I got to learn it and I got to live with it and I got to deal with it and I got to, you know, have people around me kind of showing me how this works. It, it took me years um, early on in my Christian walk to know what the Bible said. The Holy Spirit's working in my life. I saw other Christians living it out. And then over time, I finally came on board. It wasn't immediate, instant, 100%, everything, yep, I got it, this is what the Bible says, Holy Spirit in me, I'm going to get... It took me years to get over some strong, sinful habits in my life. Anybody else? Anybody still working on that stuff? Yeah? And this is the process that we're still in. It's discipleship. It's, it's a constant thing we're always working on, we're always moving towards, we're always learning. But what we want to do is we want to close that gap. We want to make it shorter and smaller, and we want to make sure what James says comes to our minds constantly. Don't be hearers of the word only, right? But be what? Doers. And I don't think in Scripture there really is any room for those things to be separate. Always apply this. And here's what you're going to find out, I think that you know, I mean, you know it to your core. You know things that you use. If all you do is hear it, this is why so often you leave a, a Sunday morning sermon and you're like, what, is he, what did he talk about? I don't know. I think he was talking about Great Commission or something. Because what we end up doing is we don't apply what we've learned. And so a week later, I have no idea what they preached on last week. Two weeks, it's gone. And this, it's okay. I'm not offended by that. But the reality is this. If you apply something to your life, you actually practice it and do it, then you own it. It's yours. It's there, and it doesn't leave you. If it's just information, it comes in one year and out the other, and you never do anything with it, it's gone. This is where I think Jesus talks about 
The word is sown. The birds come and take it away. And he's saying, Satan will come and take that word away from you and it will be gone if you don't let it sink in and do its work. It's not just like feeling it in your heart. It's actually doing something with it in your life. So I'm going to do this. You ready? You're like, I don't know. Okay. Here's what it says. Um, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Is Jesus here with you? If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you received him as your Savior, and he's forgiven your sins, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, then that is the Spirit of Christ. Okay, that's what the the Word tells us. It's the Spirit of Christ. Now, it also says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am there among them. And it also says that uh, we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Okay, you take any your pick of any of those things. And what you're going to come to is a conclusion that Jesus is with you. If you are a believer, he is with you. And that this is a parenthesis of discipleship, okay? All authority is given to him, and he's with you, which means that it's really all about him. And you're included in that. And what he wants to do is he wants to shape you, change you, forgive you, redeem you, use you, right? So we're going to practice this. Um, It's going to be the most uncomfortable minute of your life, or the greatest, okay? But we're going to take one minute of silence, and we're going to pray. And the Word of God that you've heard either this morning and that you've heard throughout your life, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God are going to do a work in you as you pray Lord, would you show me something that I need to obey? Show me something I need to obey. I believe Jesus is with us. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that if you pray that and you mean that, he will reveal something to you, something you need to do, something you need to stop doing, something you need to correct, something you need to restore. Okay? I don't know what it is. You've got 300 people. They have 300 different things. And we're going to just pause and take a minute to do that. All right? Let's just bow our heads in silence. Amen. The wonderful thing about that is that you can do that every day. You can do it with the Lord 
anytime. You just say, God, is there anything that's between us? Anything that's I'm, I'm doing, not doing, that's dishonoring you? Would, you? would you show that to me? And this is part of the process of discipleship. Amen? I want to commission some folks this morning. We were doing this week by week, and uh, just what we're doing is we're saying we're praying for you. You have an important job to do, and we're with you, and we, want, we believe in what your role is in reaching some people around you. Uh, this morning, I'm going to ask our grandparents to stand. If you're a grandparent this morning, you're, uh, you have little grandkids or older grandkids, adult grandkids, great-grandkids, you're a grandparent this morning, uh, we want to just lift you up. You have a, a wonderful ministry and a wonderful opportunity uh, to do some great discipleship uh, with uh, some young, the next generation, two generations. And Father, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to bless, motivate, strengthen, and encourage, empower these grandparents, Lord. I know without a doubt they have a heart, a deep heart for their grandkids. Love them so much, achingly. Lord, I, I pray that you would take that love, that you would show them how that can be uh, transformed into... Um, a reflection of Christ's love for those grandkids and drawing them closer to Christ because of these people who know and love you, want to help their grandkids to know and love you, give them opportunities, give them, give them the, uh, the days, the, the moments um, to be able to pour Christ into their grandkids, Lord. Show them how, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we sing. I want to just invite you this morning, if the Lord has wrecked you in some way, revealed something to you, and you just need to get it out, then I'm going to invite you to just come and do that. I would love to pray with you, pray for you. If you need to accept Christ this morning and you don't know exactly what that looks like or how, grab me, come in and let's go talk somewhere. Let's make sure that we don't leave this place without making sure we've, we've had that moment. Amen? Let's sing.